And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hello, my name is Beatrice Brum, and I am community manager here at Persuasion. I recently wrote a piece for the magazine titled Against Shadow Banning. In this article, I explore the coded language that has now become prevalent on TikTok. TikTok is a social media platform where users post and share entertaining videos. Recently, though, TikTok, although it doesn't admit to it, alongside other social media companies, have been employing a shadow ban to try and maintain the content on the platform. A shadow ban is when a social media platform restricts a user's account, either by suppressing the content or removing the account entirely. The platform will not notify the user that they have put a shadow ban on their account. However, TikTok shadow bans have gone beyond policing content that is harmful and violates those community guidelines and basic user agreements. Recently, the social media platform has faced scandals for silencing videos and users that are discussing completely above-board content, including and not limited to an activist discussing the Uyghur genocide and those who post videos involving LGBTQ plus language in countries where it's frowned upon to be openly a part of that community. What the shadow ban shows is that social media platforms' answers of how to control their own content has become arbitrary. The fact is, social media platforms haven't developed clear-cut ways to moderate content on their sites. When it comes to TikTok and what I discuss in this article, is that we can't trust an algorithm to interpret our words in good faith. It can't, because it's not human. We have to be mindful of our own words, our own ideas, and who we're telling them to. And maybe consider that the best way to discuss our ideas is not by shouting it into an endless void, hoping that an algorithm doesn't catch it and deem it harmful, but saving those conversations in real-life human interaction. Beatrice Frum's piece called Against Shadow Banning was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. Over the last weeks, it has looked increasingly as for the Department of Justice is building a case against Donald Trump. After the search of Mar-a-Lago and other documents which have emerged, it now seems reasonably likely that Merrick Garling, the attorney general, is going to go ahead and try to prosecute Trump for alleged crimes. This should be treated as a very serious matter and a very serious question. It is clear in a democracy that a former president cannot be above the law. It is also clear that prosecutions of former officials have the potential of setting very bad precedent. If the Department of Justice goes ahead, it needs to have a very clear case. So this week on Persuasion, we have run a serious case for prosecuting Donald Trump and a serious case against prosecuting Donald Trump. And on the podcast this week, I want to do a deeper dive on this question with Damon Linker. 
Damon is a former columnist at The Week, the author of a number of books, including the Theocons, and he now runs a great substack called Eyes on the Right. He is a critic of the right, somebody who, as you'll see from the conversation, has no sympathy for Donald Trump, but he has also emerged in the last weeks as the most serious, the most vocal opponent of a prosecution of Donald Trump. So on a topic on which I myself am torn, I've used the conversation with him to try and tease out some of the relevant questions. Damon Linker, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So there's obviously been a huge debate in the country for the last weeks and months about whether or not to prosecute Donald Trump. There's been many people writing forcefully in favor of that. There was many people speaking loudly against it who are great fans of Donald Trump. There are not many people who have a long track record of opposing Donald Trump, of warning about the danger he and the populist right broadly poses, who nevertheless have argued that it would be a mistake to prosecute Trump. You're the most prominent person in that category. So why do you think it would be a mistake to prosecute Donald Trump? Well, it's an important and complicated question. I guess the, the simplest way to state it is that I believe that the federal government engaging in a prosecution of a former president who might run for president again, and this prosecution being done by an attorney general appointed by a Democrat, a president of the other party, would open a kind of can of worms that would never be able to be shut. And it raises very difficult problems about the question of legitimacy and the rule of law, that you don't need unanimity when you pursue a prosecution at the federal level, but you do need a kind of base consensus about what is legal, what isn't, and what actions violate that legality. And Trump has been such an expert at muddying those waters that you have a significant portion of the American population who will, in effect, never accept the legitimacy of the process. And that can poison things quite badly, and it's something we should do our very best to avoid doing. So I think one of the things that trips this debate up a little bit is that there's different kinds of standards you could apply to whether or not to prosecute Trump. So let's start with a question that I care most about as a scholar of democracy and a scholar of somebody who thinks about how to help liberal democracy survive in the United States, which is you know, what would the impact of a prosecution likely be? What would the impact of not prosecuting Trump likely be? For those of us who care about preserving American democracy, what is the best course of action? I think it's not obvious, it's not straightforward that that is what we should then do. I think there's other ways to think about the question, but let's focus for the bulk of this conversation on that kind of empirical question. So there's a strong set of arguments for people who say that we need to prosecute Donald Trump in order to preserve American democracy. So they will say a core element of democracy is that nobody is above the law. If we say we can't prosecute Trump because he has so many followers, because he has such power, that is itself giving up a part of American democracy. There's a more sort of consequentialist version of that same argument, which says, hey, if we don't prosecute Trump, it just shows that some people are above the law. And if he ever wins power again, he's going to be able to do whatever he wants and other future presidents are going to be able to do whatever they want because they realize that as long as they 
you know, preserve a certain amount of electoral support, they're never going to have to pay the consequences for it. So what do you say to people who argue that actually not prosecuting Trump is that kind of danger to American democracy? Well, I concede a lot of it because these are powerful objections. And I do think that there are things to worry about. Trump is, and what he represents, is a tremendous threat to American democracy. And all of those things are bad, and some of them would be a real threat. The problem that I see is that those who make that argument don't spend enough time reflecting on the bad things that would happen by going in the other direction and pursuing a prosecution. And so in some ways... You could say that my op-ed in the New York Times on the subject, its point, not so much to say we must never prosecute Trump. It's that if we're going to do this, we better do it with eyes open and think through the consequences. So what are some of those consequences? Well, I think if Merrick Garland decides to go forward with a prosecution, he goes, he arrests Trump, indicts him, puts him on trial, and ideally, from his point of view, convicts him, sends him to jail. Through that entire process, Trump will be doing what he does best, which is acting as a classical demagogue. He will be trying to point to every bit of evidence that he can think of that this is not a legitimate act. It is not the rule of law. It is a political witch hunt by other means. Instead of trying to defeat him in an election, you have the guy who Mitch McConnell denied a seat on the Supreme Court in a hearing, who is still embittered about this fact, trying to enact revenge against the Republicans and against the great Donald Trump, who's the head of the Republican Party. You don't buy that story, but you think the fact that Trump is able to sell that story effectively is something we should take into consideration. Exactly, exactly. That that what has happened over the last, say, well, I mean, you can tell the story in various ways, going back to Sarah Palin and the 2012 GOP primaries and then Trump, or you can start the story with Trump's rise. However you start the story, clearly a large faction of the Republican Party has been increasingly radicalized by a kind of policy populist demagoguery over these last couple of decades, and it's getting worse. What we're describing, what I'm talking about, is exactly what you said. I don't buy that story about Merrick Garland at all. What I think is that Trump would say it, and a large portion of the Republican Party would believe it, which would drive them even further outside of ordinary politics, which takes place under a kind of roof or a tent of the rule of law that all Americans are supposed to kind of affirm that whether a Democrat's in charge or a Republican's in charge in Washington, we can trust that the law and the legal proceedings will take place fairly in both cases. Trump would be trying to teach the lesson, this is no longer true. All there is is partisanship, and this is the Democrats trying to destroy me, your champion and hero. And that could be polarizing and poisonous in a civic way beyond anything that we have yet endured. What is the outcome variable we're worried about here? Is it that a large number of Americans are going to say the prosecution of a former president is illegitimate and that's bad. We, if possible, don't want lots of citizens to think what the state does is illegitimate. That doesn't feel like it's so weighty, right? Is it 
we're worried that this is going to lead, as some people have been arguing in the last weeks, to civic violence and some kind of form of civil war. I think that term is usually really stretched beyond its sensible limits in this kind of context. People aren't really talking about the danger of civil war. They're talking about the danger of some significant political violence in the streets, which would obviously be terrible. But it's not the same thing. Or are we talking about a third kind of thing, which is this makes it more likely for Donald Trump to win the 2024 elections, or it makes it more likely for the MAGA movement to remain in control of a Republican Party in the midterm and perhaps in the long term of American politics. Which of these outcomes are you sort of concerned about when you say that this prosecution is not going to be seen as legitimate and that's going to have bad impacts on American politics? Great question and lots of answers. I'm really I'm worried about all of it, especially the longer you talked in your question as we went on. So in the background, yes, civil unrest. Yeah, I agree that maybe civil war isn't the right way to put it because like territorially, it just doesn't make sense what are going to have like inner ring suburbs and cities picking up rifles and shooting at people from the countryside. Just doesn't make sense that the country would break out that way. There are all kinds of other objections. So that's not the biggest thing, although I do worry about the rise of political violence, kind of January 6th metastasizing, not only in Washington, but in state capitals around the country and so forth, maybe Timothy McVeigh-style attacks on federal buildings and things like this, which in our current context would be, I think, even worse than that single attack was in the 90s. So that's part of it. Another part of it has to do with the shape of the Republican Party and its increasing radicalization. I mean, the number of Republicans or Republican adjacent on the far right, the number of people who are, say, members of the militia movement is very small. It's not that many people. Yet it exists and it is widespread. It's in many states. Do we want to engage in an act that could increase that movement so that people kind of adjacent to them in the Republican Party who aren't in militias, but yet start to actually be persuaded by their kinds of more radical far-right arguments. That, I think, is is definitely possible in that kind of a scenario. Uh, So I worry about that as well. When it comes to the question of Trump's ability to win the presidency, that's complicated. I don't think that Trump getting indicted and convicted and engaging in this kind of like three ring circus demagoguery for months as this is going on, and maybe even running for president from a jail cell. I don't think that in and of itself would increase his likelihood of winning. In fact, I think it would make it less likely, all things considered, that he would prevail. However, the very act of doing those incredibly civically poisonous things would be terrible for American politics. It would further radicalize the Republicans. And the fact of the matter is anyone who lived through 2016 is well aware if he is running, he could win, as implausible as it sounds. And if he wins, you don't want an even more radicalized Republican Party to be taking the reins if it happens. So all of the above in my answer there. So, you know, I think I agree with you with each part of an answer. I certainly think that sort of just the concern that some people might think something legitimate is going on is not the worst thing in the world. Obviously, it's better to avoid that when you can, but that doesn't seem like a sufficiently weighty consideration 
I mean, the prospect of violence is very scary and one we should take seriously, but that is not the deepest concern for me. The deepest concern is how do we get back to a politics in which can have deep differences of political opinion in which some people might want public policies, which, which I deeply disagree, but which everybody is actually respectful of the basic rules and norms of our political system. And that certainly requires Donald Trump not winning in 2024, but it also requires the movement he inspired to lose control of the Republican Party. Now, you know, I saw one poll on Twitter, it was not representative, of course, it was very telling in this respect. It was broadly saying, you know, would you rather be able to put Trump in jail, but he might be able to run again in 2024? Or would you rather give him a deal where he's not able to run and he's disqualified from any future office, but, you know, he gets to live out the rest of his day in Mar-a-Lago? And a huge majority of people in that poll said, prosecute him. And that, I think, just is the wrong political instinct. I certainly do not like Donald Trump. I certainly do not wish him particularly well. But if we can have a deal where he has a nice life for the rest of his life in Florida, that he leaves our politics, that is obviously worth taking for the health of the Republic. Now, I think there is an important set of empirical questions about what the effect of something like a prosecution is going to be. I mean, you know, in purely electoral terms, for example, it seems to me that the likely outcome is on the one hand, it might make it more likely that he wins the Republican primary. It does feel, even in the last weeks, that he's gone from becoming a little bit more marginal to the Republican Party and people talking a lot about alternatives like Ron DeSantis and so on, to being at the center of debate. And I think doing better in betting markets in terms of winning the primary. It may also make him less likely to win the actual general election. So how far down you know, should we be trying to answer those questions before we figure out whether or not it's good that he's being prosecuted? Is that just a fool's errand because it's something that's really hard to predict? How much should we be taking those kind of empirical conjectures into consideration when trying to figure out what to do? And you know, I have in mind here a little bit one criticism, which is this is all just too complicated, right? Like if he's done the crime, just prosecute him, stop trying to think you can predict the effect that all of this is going to have. Yeah, I mean, that's an important question. And I mean, in general, my entire line on this is an outgrowth of my insistence on talking about these empirical issues. So clearly, I think they're really important, even though it's speculation and we don't know and we're all dealing with uncertainties here. I just want the full range of uncertainties on the table. I want to think through consequences as many stages into the future as we can imagine with each path forward. And that's what I thought is lacking and why I've been writing what I have to try to say like, all right, fine, you're convinced like the Twitter poll you mentioned, like we got to prosecute him no matter what. Okay, well, you think that I totally sympathize with that conviction. But you really shouldn't come to such a strong conclusion until you've thought through what could happen if we do. Are those scenarios all worse than or better than the one if we follow what your conviction tells you? And, you know, I know we don't really want to get into the details of the law on this. I'm not a lawyer. I don't think you are either. I'm in no position independently to evaluate it. But I'm struck. I really respect the writings of Jack Goldsmith who writes for Lawfare and many other things. You know, he's been very clear in his writings over the last few weeks since the Mar-a-Lago business began. 
and saying he's always thought this and he remains unclear about whether and what federal law Trump may have actually violated. Now, again, I don't want to delve into the, that question because I get the feeling of people when they say he has to be punished. He's bad. He did all these things. We all saw it with our own eyes. It happened in front of all of us. He must be punished. I get that imperative, that feeling of an imperative. But, you know, is it true? Most of the people who say that are not lawyers either, and they can't point to specific federal statutes that he violated within the federal code. It's a kind of feeling that he must be guilty and a feeling that if he isn't guilty, there's something deeply terrible about federal law that why don't we have laws against this? Well, Jack Goldsmith co-wrote a book with Bob Bauer, came out around the time of the 2020 election, where they actually laid out the fact that this is a problem, that a lot of the things that Trump did while he was president that seemed so terrible were violations of norms and not laws. And so they advocate that we have to pass a lot of new laws to prevent this in the future. But of course, that would be about the future, not the past. And so my only point in going even that far down that path is simply to say, that we're dealing with incredibly intense feelings and convictions here. And I get it and I empathize with it. I feel it in myself too. But the stakes are incredibly high and we need to combine those convictions with some calculus. All right, if we go with my gut, what's likely to happen? And is that end result better or worse than the present status quo? And that kind of question needs to be asked over and over again as time moves forward into new events. One of the key questions sort of in the ballpark of thinking about the law is simply, is a prosecution going to stick, right? So there might be one concern about, you know, are they trying to put him in jail for something that isn't in fact a crime or something like that? I don't take that that's your main concern. So one of the obvious questions, well, if there's insufficient federal statutes to criminalize acts that really are immoral and we're trying to somehow prosecute him for something that really is immoral, but where the law is a little bit murky, one question is simply, well, does that significantly raise the likelihood of an acquittal and what's the impact of an acquittal going to be. And certainly when we're thinking about 2024, and I think you make a good case that we should at least be aware of the likely consequences electorally and in terms of Trump's hold over political system for the next years, probably the worst outcome I can think of is that Merrick Garland brings a federal prosecution. Trump says this is completely illegitimate all along. In the end, he's acquitted by a jury or there's a mistrial over and over, and he can go to the country and, you know, however insincerely or however wrongly say, uh, I've been vindicated, I've been acquitted, I'm innocent. And that certainly would not achieve the purpose of showing that Trump is not above the law, not achieve the purpose of holding him accountable for his misdeeds, and probably put him in the strongest possible position to win the Republican nomination in 2024 and potentially even the election. Right. I completely agree. And that would be very, very bad because he would be able to say, see, I told you so. And it would convince a lot of the country that it was a politically motivated prosecution all along. And the evidence is that they couldn't make it stick. So, you know, the old line, if you're going to go after the king, make sure you don't miss. So that does, I think, matter enormously. 
But I mean, just parenthetically, I better just put on the table, you know, the question is, if he's indicted and there's going to be a trial, there has to be jury selection. Think of the problems that are going to be raised by jury selection. Like the prosecution will have the feeling like, well, Trump voters are unpersuadable. They're so in the tank for Trump. It's like trying to do a murder trial with, you know, the victim's closest family as jury members. You're inevitably going to end up with a not guilty verdict or a hung jury more likely. And then, of course, the defense will raise huge objections. What, you're not going to allow anybody? I mean, Trump won almost half the country and all 12 jurors are Democrats who voted for Biden. That's totally skewed. Don't you see? It's a politicized prosecution. But if they say, no, we'll allow roughly half to be Trump voters, that I do think raises the possibility that we're going to end up with a hung jury because one or more of them won't be persuadable. And that shows exactly, I think maybe I should have used that in my Times op-ed as another scenario, because it shows the very difficult situation of trying to enforce the law, which is supposed to be impartial and apply equally to all, intersecting in this toxic way with our political divisions in a way that might make the legal side of it short circuit in a way none of us wants to happen. Yeah, so I felt slightly similarly about the attempts to impeach Trump. My baseline position is, if possible, the way to beat a four-time populist is at the ballot box. I know that we did that in 2020, but unfortunately, in a democracy, you have to be able to do that again. It is deeply irresponsible and immoral that Trump has not recognized his defeat in 2020. But to sustainably make sure that the country is sane, we have to achieve a political culture in which either Trump or imitators of him are just not going to be able to be close to winning because otherwise we're going to be in mortal peril as long as these demagogues are within inches of the presidency. So the baseline aspiration for how to deal with a populist always has to be democratically winning very clear majorities against him. That's always made me sort of bottom line skeptical of the political utility of impeachment or now of prosecution. Now, I do think that there is also a very strong argument that if you do the crime, you do the time, that if you have committed a crime, then you should be punished for it if it's a significant crime. And it does violate an important democratic principle if we end up saying, well, you unfortunately so important, uh, you unfortunately have so much support in the country that it's going to be really divisive if we put you in jail. So let's spare you. So, you know, that makes me open to the attempts at impeaching, to the attempts at prosecuting Trump. It made me genuinely torn. Now, the one thing that I've always argued, and the reason why in the end I was against the attempts to impeach Trump is, you don't vindicate the principle that everybody's equal before the law by trying to try somebody or trying to impeach somebody and failing. Because when the cookie crumbles, people for political reasons, you know, vote against impeachment, or there's a hung jury because there's Trump superfans on the jury, or because the case that the federal law simply is not clear enough, right? So the one thing I feel sort of clear about in this is, you know, we're not vindicating the principle that everybody's equal before the law by trying Donald Trump and failing to convict him because parts of the jury are working in his favor. And so I think sort of, you know, when we're debating about whether or not to impeach Trump, not enough attention was paid to what happens if impeachment goes pretty badly wrong and ends up more or less along partisan lines acquitting him. 
has happened twice. And I'm struck by how little about the public debate, but this really complicated issue for the last weeks or months has been, well, what if he gets acquitted? <laughs> um, and, and it's an important question, not a positive question, but it's an important question to consider. Yeah, I agree. I, I, my, my instincts, I don't have polling at, at hand to back it up, but my feeling is that a lot of the people who are most in favor of prosecution, the ones who, say, answered your Twitter poll that you mentioned, they're so convinced that he's guilty that they sort of presume any fair presentation of the evidence will end in a conviction. They don't think that he could get off because he's so obviously guilty. I think that it's much more unclear than that. I would like to add, since you brought up impeachment, I, this is actually very interesting that you and I disagree on that. I mean, I definitely think a lot of what you're saying about the danger of trying to impeach him and then failing may mitigate against the wisdom of having impeached him the first time about the Zelensky business in Ukraine. But the second one, after his behavior on January 6th, I think there was really no choice but to try that. And I don't think it raises the same kinds of issues that concern me about a trial because it isn't really a legal proceeding. It's a political proceeding. I mean, it involves laws. And if he broke laws, that's further evidence for why he should be convicted in the impeachment. But the impeachment trial is a kind of political statement of whether we're going to declare you anathema. It's somewhat parallel to a no-confidence vote in a parliamentary system. And even though at the very end, after January 6th, he was already leaving office and actually the trial was taking place when he was already gone, they came closer in the second impeachment to actually convicting him than they did. And the first one fell about 10 votes short. But think of how good it would have been for American democracy to convict him after those actions. It wouldn't have taken all Republicans just a group of Republicans, a substantial group of Republicans to join with Democrats and make a bipartisan statement that these actions of Donald Trump are beyond the pale. They are a violation of his oath of office, and he must be declared anathema in that way. And especially if it could have been worded, the actual conviction, in such a way that he was precluded from ever running for high office again. That, in a way, would have been the happy ending that I now say we don't have as an option. So I agree. I think the grounds for the first impeachment were much more complicated. I think the second impeachment had grounds which were sadly a slam dunk. I think it's very clear that Trump's actions on January 6th fell under the rubric of high crimes and misdemeanors. But again, for me, there was this moment when people said, you know, we have to impeach him because we can't bear him to be in office for another 13 or 14 days because who knows what we're going to do. And the case for the second impeachment really was, we're going to be able to get him out of office within the 13, 14 days that he has left, and we're going to win a majority. And so if I had felt that was realistic, or even if I had felt that it's realistic to convict him after January 20th, but to actually win the trial, I would have been in favor of it. The reason why I opposed it is that I rightly judged that we were never going to get to 67 senators. And to me, again, there's nothing gained in the attempt at a authoritative rebuke of a sitting or former president for terrible crimes and misdemeanors when that rebuke doesn't work because, in fact, we can't get the majority of senators. So for me, this sort of question of, you know, if the point of 
a impeachment or the point of a trial is to say, authoritatively, we, the House and the Senate of the United States, or we, the people, say, this is unacceptable, this person is beyond the pale. Well, you better be able to get it there. I'm very torn about the prosecution, but I certainly hope that if the Attorney General goes ahead with a prosecution, pretty confident that we're going to be able to make a prosecution stick because the outcome of a failed prosecution, symbolically, as well as practically, I think would be quite disastrous. Yes, I'd certainly agree on that. I mean, the only thing I would add is I even think like when it comes to the Mar-a-Lago business of the confidential documents, I would hope that Merrick Garland will not pursue a prosecution for obstruction of justice alone. You know, there have been some articles and news sources over the last few days pointing to the fact that that's really the main thing they think he might be guilty of when it comes to this strange habit he had of <laughs> wanting to abscond from the White House with top secret documents to his home in Florida, simply because obstruction of justice is a crime. And ideally, you would prosecute someone, including Trump, for it. The problem is, if you or I are falsely charged with a crime, and we fight it by trying to thwart the investigation because we think we're innocent, that is an example of obstruction of justice. And I think Trump would be very effective if that's the only charge of saying, you're trying to charge me for the crime of defending myself against the BS charge that you've raised against me. You're not actually charging me with having violated any other laws. Of course, I defend tried to defend myself. And again, in legal terms, that's one thing. It is a crime, and so technically he should be prosecuted for it if he's guilty of it. But in political terms, it would backfire, I think, quite badly and allow him to give another version of his standard defense that this is a politically motivated witch hunt. I did nothing wrong. They're trying to take me down for simply defending myself. Let's widen the lens a little bit here to consider what the potential prosecution of Trump and the debate about it uh, says about the state of the United States. One thing I was struck by is that a lot of your critics claimed, well, look, this is naive to think that, you know, if only we leave Trump alone and have some leniency towards him, then everything is going to turn out great and things will look up. And I thought you had a pretty effective response to it, which was to say, no, 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 no. I'm not naively thinking things are going to be great. I'm trying to think about how to stop things from getting much, much worse than they are right now. Without going back to whether or not we should prosecute Trump, what do you think the basic scenarios here are? I mean, what would it look like for things to get much worse? And are there scenarios in which things do get better? Is there a way through this and out of this where five or 10 years from now, we might breathe a careful sigh of relief and say, you know, the worst is over? Those are great questions and hard ones to answer. As always, it's, you know, as with so much of this conversation, it's speculative about the future. How will things unfold? But I guess this is in general how I see it. I mean, the way I look at these things, I am a Democrat. I've voted only for Democrats for like two decades now. I almost have a principle that I will not vote for a Republican because I think the party is in such a bad way. I don't want to give them power at any level. And that speaks to the path forward to kind of the best possible outcome, which is 
Republicans losing. They have to lose for pulling this crap. <laughs> and the problem is that they've been, you know, doing remarkably well despite their extremism, despite their demagoguery. And as long as that happens, they have no incentive to change course. And so that's kind of the always the tripwire, the problem. I mean, whether we're talking about the Labour Party in the UK under Thatcher and her successors in the Tory party, or in this country when Reagan was president and then the first Bush and the moderation of the Democrats that we got with the rise of Bill Clinton in 92, you see lessons learned by elective parties. If you lose and then lose again and then lose again, there's a big incentive to change something. Until the Republicans have the lesson that they won't be rewarded for this kind of crap. They are not going to change course. In fact, Trump opened the possibility of a more winning coalition of kind of right-wing populism. Like, I actually think Ron DeSantis could potentially win a lot more votes than Trump simply because he won't be hated by as many people as much as Trump does. Trump is uniquely polarizing. His voters love him, but much of the country can't stand him and will never vote for him. So that means he has a very hard ceiling, which tends to keep him at the national level of the vote below the Democratic opponent. So another right-wing populist who isn't quite as negative could actually do better. And that's a scary prospect. I don't think quite as scary as a Trump prospect, but that's something else we could debate. The other kind of dimension of your question about what we would see, I mean, the way I look at this stuff, I started by saying that I'm a Democrat and I vote for Democrats. But when I do analysis, I try to kind of step outside of both parties and look at it globally from my own personal cognitive Mount Olympus to the extent that I can. And when I do, what I'm seeing is a kind of ricochet kind of centrifugal forces taking over in American politics in a way that really troubles me, where the right radicalizes and that triggers the left to then radicalize in response to them, which gives the right more fodder of saying, look how extreme the left is. You have to vote for our extreme candidate. And, you know, there's a dynamic to this having to do with negative partisanship and other things. And so I guess what I would foresee in a kind of worst case scenarios, as opposed to the happy ending of the Republicans losing and learning a lesson from it and then moderating, would be that the Republicans keep winning in part by provoking the Democrats to move ever further left, which convinces people to hold their noses and say, I hate Donald Trump and DeSantis and Carrie Lake or whoever else is running on the right, but I'm more scared of the Democrats, so I guess I'll just vote for those right-wingers anyway, as the Republicans are becoming more aligned with the extremists on the militia movement and things like this. So, again, further centrifugal dividing out from the center with each extreme provoking the other to ever greater extremism. And in a two-party system, one of those two is always going to win. And whichever one wins then ends up provoking the other side to potentially be even more extreme in the next cycle. So that's sort of the nightmare scenario that keeps me up at night. 
that I think is similar to my instinct. My basic analysis of American politics continues to be, but in purely electoral terms, you know, the Republican Party and Donald Trump are way out of the American cultural mainstream. Most Americans do not like Donald Trump. Most American voters do not like Donald Trump. They look at what the Republican Party does and think it's very extreme. The problem is, and I'm not saying that they're substantively equivalent, but in the perception of many voters they are, that the Democrats are also seen as being way out of a cultural mainstream. And that is less the case because of Joe Biden or most prominent exponents of the Democratic Party, but it is because of a broader set of elite norms and behavior of elite institutions that are associated with the Democratic Party and that a lot of Americans deeply dislike and are quite worried about. And that, I think, gives space for a kind of potential political realignment, which is really what we're talking about here, in one of two ways. The first is that Democrats manage to have you know, an exciting, forward-looking, dynamic candidate that speaks to the highest aspirations of a country and actually appeals to the value of a significant majority of Americans, if perhaps not a crushing majority of Americans, like Barack Obama did in 2008. That, I think, is one way to get a kind of realignment. And as you're saying, if that person won two presidential elections and did very well in midterms, and you know that would put a lot of electoral pressure on Republicans to shed the MAGA movement and return to the table in a serious way. I think there's also absolutely scope for realignment that comes from the right. I imagine a candidate let's say like Winston Sears, the lieutenant governor of Virginia, somebody who might be black or might be Latino on the Republican side. I don't want to speak about Sears here in particular, who I don't know all that much about, but somebody who's not, not bigoted, who's not racist, who's not extreme, but who's sort of clearly center-right on culture. Somebody who's willing to actually move into the center or the center-left on the economy. That was always the most appealing piece of Donald Trump in 2016, the perception that he was doing that. I think that person might be able to win two very clear majorities in presidential elections as well. And the question then is, and I think that'll depend in part on personality and happenstance, is that a person that actually is respectful of the basic norms and rules of American democracy, who's able to win the Republican Party back from its most extreme wing, makes it a responsible party, and then in turn forces Democrats back to the center as well? Or is that person going to use the immense power that they're going to enjoy in the kind of way Viktor Orban has in Hungary. And that, I think, is difficult to predict. It'll depend on the personality of that person and on their ideology. I think that this is one of those moments where agency is going to be as decisive as structure. I agree with everything you said, Yasha. I mean, the one thing I guess I would add is until the person of Donald Trump is off the stage, I think at least the right-wing scenario or the conservative Republican scenario of realignment, I think, will be frozen in its current place, which is not happening, simply because he's so polarizing and the dynamic within the Republican Party that no more decent center-right figure will have either the guts or the funding from donors, or likely the traction to actually take down Trump and succeed him as head of the party. Again, Trump is getting up there. If anything happens to him physically that hampers him such that he cannot hold rallies, cannot 
take part in a debate and so forth. If he bows out and lets the party kind of find its way on its own, at the moment it looks like it would be DeSantis, but then it would be far more fluid. Then someone else could come on the scene and potentially prevail in a way that I think is very promising. But Trump is like we're sort of stuck in a suspended animation in this very toxic place where it seems like the only way to go is worse (laughs) as long as he's around. He's so uniquely bad for the system in my opinion. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, it's always tempting to say that the most important election is the next one. And in 2024, there's a good case for that. I mean, if Donald Trump is running for a second term, if he manages to win the Republican nomination, that would be very worrying. Jonathan Rauch has a very good piece in The Atlantic on what a second term by Trump might look like. But perhaps 2024 will end up being, and there's many other possibilities, but it might end up being a sort of odd grudge match rerun of 2020. And in a way, the more interesting and perhaps in some ways more important election is going to be 2028. Perhaps it'll take until 2028 for Democrats and hopefully Republicans to be in a place to redefine themselves. And that may, you know, be the election in which we see the emergence of a new shape of one or two of those parties, you know, assuming that by 2028, Trump is, you know, out of the running for one reason or another, either because of age or health problems, or because he's in federal prison, or because he's just had a second term in office and we've somehow made it through and have a somewhat free and fair election afterwards, which is an uncertain prospect. And obviously on the Democratic side, by 2028, Joe Biden won't be the candidate for us, obviously questions, but whether he'll be the candidate in 2024 as well. Let me ask you this as a last question. I think this has been really helpful. One of the odd things is that we're sort of arguing about what other people should do, right? The question about whether or not Trump should be prosecuted is sort of probably quite influential. And I'm sure that people are, in fact, following these debates who make some of those decisions, but it's ultimately sort of appealing to a few decision makers about what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. What should the rest of us do? What are some pieces of advice you would give those who are deeply worried about Donald Trump and right-wing populism, but who perhaps are in danger of reacting in wrong ways or in short-sighted ways, what are some principles we should try and follow over the next years to save the American Republic? Well, wow, that's a big burden on my shoulders here. I mean, my general response is just to say, keep your heads. I know how hard it is, especially on social media, being provoked all the time and marinating in so much ugliness of our public life these days. But I do think... The best thing that Democrats, people who want to see Trump go down, want to see the Republican Party kind of regain its senses, is to do everything we individually can do to not give the right evidence to confirm its conspiratorial demagoguery about us to show that we recognize that our Trump voting fellow citizens are fellow citizens and not some invading force from some foreign country or planet. They are our fellow citizens. We have to learn how to get along with them to have a polity. To not in any way stand up 
to and accept their caricature of us and what we stand for. But when we respond, to actually respond with as much level-headed substance as we can to show, you know what, if anything, we're just sort of boring, earnest people who want to do what's best for the country. We're not these lunatic people that you imagine on the left and some of whom are there on the left. We want crime to be down and the economy to grow and jobs to be created and people to not be put in bankruptcy by a medical condition. You know, just basic kitchen table, as we Americans like to say, issues. And just don't rise to the bait. When I was a columnist at The Week, one of my colleagues back earlier around 2014 to 16 there's a guy named Michael Brendan Doherty, who's a conservative. He now works for National Review. He wrote a great column right around the time that Trump won in 2016, predicting that he would effectively break the mainstream media because he would so provoke the mainstream media into kind of apoplectic spasms of loathing that they would stop adhering to the strictest journalistic standards. They would start to let those limits on their pot shots and kind of striving for a kind of journalistic objectivity, even if it never actually was achieved. That was the ideal. And Doherty predicted that they're going to hate everything that this guy does for the next four years, that their status in the minds of Americans overall are going to drop precipitously. And I think he was right. I mean, the last thing I'll say is the most ominous chart or bit of public opinion that I can think of these days in recent years is the Gallup poll about confidence in American institutions, which just falls lower and lower and lower. And many Americans on both sides, it sort of flips thermostatically depending on who's in the White House, which is, you know, a redescription of the same problem. But many of our institutions, the presidency, the courts, Congress, the media, scientists, the medical establishment are drifting lower and lower, some of them now in the single digits of confidence in these institutions. It's within that context that a Donald Trump or a Ron DeSantis demagogue actually can gain traction by people not trusting in the rule of law, not trusting in the Justice Department of a Democratic administration to try a law-breaking Republican president. Um, so so anything we can do to buoy, to raise up that confidence that actually we're not as crazy as they say we are, we actually mean well and we're your neighbors, I think is going to contribute in some small way to helping. Well, from Yasha and Damon, your friendly neighbors, thank you for listening to this podcast and thank you, Damon, for sharing your insights with us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner. 
for their song, Chess Pieces. 